Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. started. Uh, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Michael, if this is maybe your first time. Um, we're going to talk about a new sutra tonight. We're going to talk about a new Buddhist text tonight. Um, but because there's a number of familiar faces here from last weekend, um, I actually just want to mention <clears throat> something from last week so that if you were here, you'll, you'll be like, oh, we're talking about that again. Yeah, we're talking about that again. Um, and so, yeah, so really quickly, the last three weeks, actually, we were talking about this sutra called the Brahmajala Sutra, Brahma's Net. And this sutra is called, sometimes it's translated as, what Buddhism is not. And so the whole sutra is actually about what Buddhism isn't. And the thing that we talked about last week were these 62 drishti, or false views. And even though this language of drishtis and views and all of Atman and all of that, even though it might, it, it might seem very esoteric and all of that, last week what I tried to get across was that these are 62 views of this world that we live in. There's 62 views about life or the afterlife. There are views of what happens, where did we come from, and where do we go when we die? (laughs) Right? And so these are, even though these are, you know, a sutra from 500 BC, right? So 2,500 years old, they were talking about the view that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. The view that when you die, you're going to just go into the dirt and that's it. The view that when you die, you're going to be reincarnated in one of six ways. The view that when you die, this will happen. The view that when you die, that will happen. Whatever potential you can think of, it was one of these 62 views that was kind of popular at the time of the Buddha. And what I spent a lot of time last week doing was showing how these views are still... They're still at play today. And that my point last week was is that surprisingly, 2,500 years later, the jury is still out in terms of what happens when we die. Nobody knows. And because nobody knows, everybody has a view about what this world's all about, where we came from. Did we come from heaven? Did we come from hell? Did we come from dirt? Like, where did we come from? And what happens when this ends? Does it just end? Does it keep going? How does it keep going? So last time we, I, I spent all night on these 62 views. We went through them. And at the air, very end of the sutra, surprise, Buddhism is not one of these 62 views. In fact, Buddhism is a practice of not having a fixed view. That was the surprise. But last week, though, what we really were touching upon was that all of these 62 views, they are all based on this idea, something called an atma. That's where we start tonight. 
So this new suture tonight is this one. Uh, I just wanted to remind everybody. I just wanted to remind everybody that that's what we're up against. These 62 views of what happens versus this idea. Okay, so this is... Oh, we're just done. So the sutra tonight is coming from here. And this is also, I brought all these in for those that don't know about it. So we're going to do a sutra called the Nakula Pita Sutta. Nakula Pita is a person. Interestingly, he's not a monk. He's a lay person, a householder. So that's going to be interesting. But this tiny little, where'd you go? This tiny little Nakula Pita is a little, you know, it's like three or four pages of this larger collection. So this is a collection of a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of sutras, a bunch of discourses of the Buddha. And this particular collection is called the Samyutta Nikaya. This is a Nikaya. This is a Nikaya, a collection. This is a Nikaya. And this is a Nikaya. In fact, these are the four Nikayas. Wow. These are the four collections of teachings of the Buddha. These are all full of sutras, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sutras. Wow. And we're pulling just one tiny little one from in here. And this is called, oh, by the way, this one is called the Diga Nikaya. These are the long discourses of the Buddha. These are, these are more than just a few pages. These are usually about 20, 30 pages each, so they're long. This is the Majima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses. So these are all around 10, 9, 10 pages long. Uh, this is the third collection that we're reading from tonight. And Samyutta means connected. And what that is, is that all of these sutras are <clears throat> lumped together by their topic. And this section of the Samyutta Nikaya is called the Kanana Samyutta, or Skanda section. It's a section on mm -hmm. the Skandhas. So if you're familiar with Buddhism already, tonight's all about the Skandhas. Coming from this section of the Samyutta Nikaya, that's all about the Skandhas. And this, the fourth collection, Anguttara Nikaya, is the collection of enumerated discourses. So these are all these discourses that are about... Uh, things in threes, things in fours, like the Four Noble Truths, the Four Formless Samadhis, the Four Fearlessnesses, all the fives, like the five skandhas, all the sixes, all the sevens, all the eights, like the Eightfold Noble Path, nines and tens. So that's how this one's divided, in case you didn't know all that. So these are all the old sutras from the Pali language, and tonight we're doing our little... Nakula Pita Sutta, which again is about these skantas. Yep. So, so this pile, this is the whole Pali canon minus the Vinaya, correct? And the Abhidhamma. Yes, the Vinaya would be a big stack of books over here that would have all the rules for monks. And the Abhidharma would be a big stack of books over here that have all the, the lists and commentaries on this stuff. Okay. And that would be the whole Pali canon. If I had brought it all in. Here's the sutras, though. No? Is there any redundancy in those? 
Well, redundancy in ideas, because... Right, but in the sutras themselves. Yeah, they're all... In only one, one of those four books. This is the one, for example, where he talks to Nakulapita. And this is the only place you're going to find the Nakulapita Sutta. And, in fact, I just want to, in case you have been coming for a while, it's in this Skanda section that you find the very, very, very first sutra. The Dharmachaka Papatana Sutta, the, the Dharma wheel turning sutra, is in the Skanda section because in that sutra he talks about these skandhas. All right, so that's what we're talking about tonight. And just for simplicity's sake, there is this concept in Indian religion, Indian philosophy, called an Atman that can be translated as self, essence, soul essential self. It's tricky to translate this word into English. And I'm going to do a quick uh, reminder of what a self is. <laughs> and if, if you don't know much about Dharma, if you don't know much about Buddhist teachings, tonight is a great night. This is like the basic, the basic thing to know about. Right? This will be nice. And then we'll get into this because a lot of the ideas come up in the sutra. So again, this is from the Skanda section. This is the Nakula Pitta. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Buddha, the Blessed One, was dwelling among the Bhagas at Sumsumaragira in the Beshakala Grove, otherwise known as the Deer Park. Then the householder, Nakula Pitta, approached the Blessed One, the Buddha, paid homage to him, sat down on one side, and said to him, I am old, venerable sir, aged, burdened with years, advanced in life, come to the last stage, afflicted in body, often ill. I rarely get to see the Blessed One, the Buddha, and the bhikkhus, his monks, those worthy of esteem. Let the Blessed One exhort me, Venerable Sir. Let him instruct me, since that would lead to my welfare and happiness for a very long time. So it is, householder. So it is, the Buddha said. This body of yours is afflicted, weighed down, encumbered. If anyone carrying around this body were to claim it to be healthy, even for a moment, what is that due to other than their foolishness? Therefore, household, you should train yourself thusly, thinking, even though I am afflicted in body, my mind will be unafflicted. Thus should you train yourself. Then the householder, Nakulapita, having delighted and rejoiced in the Blessed One's statement, rose from his seat and having paid homage to the Blessed One, Keeping him on his right, he approached the Venerable Shariputta. Having paid homage to the Venerable Sariputra, one of the Buddha's monks, he sat down to one side, and the Venerable Sariputra said to him, Householder, your faculties are so serene. Your facial complexion is pure and bright. Did you get to hear a Dharma talk today in the presence of the Blessed One? Why, yes, sir. Just now, I was anointed by the Blessed One with the ambrosia of a Dharma talk. And what kind of ambrosia of a Dharma talk 
did the Blessed One anoint you with, householder? And here, Venerable Sir, I approached the Blessed One and said, Venerable Sir, I'm aged, I'm burdened, and so it is, the Buddha said, so it is, this body of yours is afflicted, weighed down, encumbered. If anyone carrying around this body were to claim it to be healthy even for a moment, that would be only due to foolishness. It is with that ambrosia of such a Dharma talk, Venerable Shariputta, that the Blessed One anointed me. And Shariputra replied, didn't it occur to you, householder, to question the Blessed One further as to how one is afflicted in body and afflicted in mind? And how one is afflicted in body but not afflicted in mind? We would, we would come from far away, Venerable Sir, to learn the meaning of this statement from the Venerable Shariputra. It would be good, indeed, if the Venerable Shariputra would clear up the meaning of the Buddha's statement. Then listen and attend closely, householder, and I will speak. Yes, Venerable Sir, the householder Nakulapita replied. And the Venerable Shariputra said this. How, householder? Is one afflicted in body and afflicted in mind? Here, householder, the uninstructed worldling who is not a seer of the noble ones and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dharma, who is not a seer of superior persons and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dharma, this person regards form as their self or self as possessing form, or form as in self, or self as in form. He lives obsessed by these notions. I am form. Form is mine. As he lives obsessed by these notions, that form of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of form, there arises in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. Or he regards feeling as self or self as possessing feeling or feeling as in self or self as in feeling. He lives obsessed by the notions, I am feeling, feeling is mine. As he lives obsessed by these notions, that feeling of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of feeling, there arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. He regards his perception as self, or self as possessing perception. Or he regards conditioning volitional forms as his self, or self as possessing volitional forms. Or finally, he regards consciousness as his self, or self as possessing consciousness, or consciousness in self, or self as in consciousness. He lives obsessed by these notions. I am consciousness. Consciousness is mine. As he lives obsessed by these notions, that very consciousness of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of consciousness, there arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. It is in such a way, householder, that one is afflicted in body and afflicted in mind. Okay, so let's pause there so we understand fully what's going on here. So if this is your first time hearing about the Dharma or you just haven't heard it in a while... What's being spoken about here are the five, what is usually 
referred to in their Sanskrit name as skandhas. And this word skandha means to bunch together. Sometimes these are called aggregates, because in English we have this word aggregation. Sometimes they're translated as heaps or bundles. So get into this idea that a skandha is this like little clump. And there are these five clumps. And so what this is walking, what Shariputra, who's a monk, by the way, this isn't even the Buddha, this is a monk telling this householder, he's walking him through these five elements or these five aggregates. And so I want to walk you through these really quickly so then we can revisit the sutra. Mm, But before I do that, let's go back to this idea of our self. Yeah, because this, this will not have the same impact if we don't understand what it's kind of rubbing up against in that way. So again, in India, time of the Buddha and even beyond, there's this idea of an Atman, the self. And I often like to remind everybody about themselves and what is it, what's being spoken about here, right? So here's the thing about it. Um, you <laughs> used to be a lot smaller than you are now, right? There was a time when you were like this tall, no hair, probably like grayish eyes, right? Totally this being, right? And then you became this being. And maybe by then you had like long hair or whatever and this color eyes, right? And, and you were getting ready to go to your first day of elementary school and you had your little lunch pail and you were all scared because whatever. And then you grew up and you were in high school and now you were much taller and your hair was totally different. And your body's gone through all kinds of crazy changes and stuff. And you're going to your prom and you're uh, getting all excited about your prom or whatever. And then you keep changing, keep all of that, right? Until finally you wind up here tonight. Everybody with me on this journey, right? So here's the thing about it. Here's what the Buddhists are talking about with this self-idea. And in fact, it's what we're always talking about with this self-idea, but not all of us have taken the time to really think about this. What an Atman is, is the idea that even though there was a time when you were this big, very small, baby, couldn't even talk, and then you were this big, going to elementary school and then this big going to high school and this big being an adult, there's an idea that somehow through all of that, somehow between the ears and behind the eyes, like a little pilot zipping around, the idea is that there was some thing or somebody that was the recipient of the experiences of that baby the recipient, the the experiencer of that little lunch pail and that little being afraid of going to elementary school, the recipient of the prom date, the, you see what I'm saying? There's this notion that you have been there the whole time being the experiencer of your life. That's a self. That's what everybody means by a self. That from the time you were born till now, there has been some, again, something, somebody that has been receiving all of that. And then that person says, yeah, what do you want me to remember? Right? You, you want to see some photographs? 
Like what? That's me, right? And there's something really persistent about this idea of a self, which is that it seems really obvious. We, we give it a name. A singular, it's not like I had a different name when I was a baby than elementary school, than high school till now, right? Mike, the whole way, even though I never like to be called Mike. They always <laughs> called me Mike, though, but Mike through the whole thing, right? So there's this idea of like, because I had the name, there was a recipient of it all. But again, there's even this persistent idea that, no, I was there. I, rem- I, I, I mean, the you know, memories are vague from babyhood, but I remember that little lunch pail. I remember the bus, school bus. I remember it all. And therefore, well, there, there must be a self then, right? That, that, well, that's the thing about it. That's the thing, is that at the time of the Buddha, everybody believed in that, that receiver, that experiencer of one's life. But they knew that 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 baby, that the the flesh of that baby, the hair color, even the not hair, the eye color, they knew that 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 changed, got bigger, hair changed, hair fell out, whatever. They knew that, but there must be something riding through all of that. Again, the self. And then, of course, what happens is, is that that self... (laughs) can go on one of 62 rides. That's the idea of that. All of these 62 views are based on this idea of a self that either gets reincarnated or goes into the dirt or goes up to heaven or whatever. It's all based on that idea of a self. Okay? And again, the whole concept, it's one of those 62 views, the whole concept of reincarnation, the idea that, yeah, I'm a... I'm a a male human being this time around, but last time around, I might have been a female giraffe. So the gender, the species, the size, the shape, the color, all of that changes lifetime after lifetime. But just like that baby going through school, going to now, that there was understood to be a self, Well, the idea is that in that process of reincarnation, lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, there's something or somebody being reincarnated. There's something or somebody that did the bad things to wind up as an animal or whatever. That's the idea. All 62 of those views is based on the, the idea that there's something there that reincarnates, that receives... Uh, again, the experiences that receives the karma, puts out the karma. It's the idea of an agent, right? So that's over here. What happened to the Buddha, apparently, is that he had this great realization that, for simplicity's sake, they call an Atman. <laughs> no Atman. <laughs> So the Buddha's great realization is sometimes articulated as anatman, that there isn't a recipient. There is the persistent illusion of a recipient, but there actually isn't anything that is consistently present from the baby to the child to the adult. Right? Instead of a atman, Instead of a self or an essence or a soul, an individual, Buddhism or the Buddha recognized a, a momentary aggregation or coagulation 
of five elements, five things. The first to understand, and it's the most important, is this thing called rupa, R-U-P-A, that's a Sanskrit word, that's always translated in Buddhism as form. And that's a tricky word. I mean, it's a tricky translation. In many ways, it's what rupa means. Rupa sort of means shape, form. And if you think about it, really, just for a moment, just think about it. How do you know what anything is? How do you, like, how do you know what this is? Isn't it, it not on its shape and form? Mm-hmm. Right? How do you know what that is? Shape and form. So the form of something, the shape of it, is what it is. In, in fact, there's a, a, a term in, in Buddhism called nama rupa, name and form as one. That the name of something and its shape are somehow the same thing. It's a weird idea. Hold on to that weird idea because I'm going to make it a little simpler, but I want that to stay in the back of your mind. What rupa kind of really means is matter, stuff, physical matter. And traditionally, rupa is anything that is a formation of the four elements, earth, fire, water, and air. If you've never studied with me before, I just want to remind everybody that when Indian philosophers or whoever says that all physical matter is made of earth, fire, water, and air, they don't mean dirt, water, fire, and wind or something. All right? It's very helpful to know that earth means solidity, that water means liquidity, fluidity, that fire actually indicates temperature, that everything has a temperature, everything is either solid or water, and actually air is whether things are alive or not. And so everything is understood to be a a certain percentage earth, a certain percentage water, a certain percentage fire, and a certain percentage air or life. This is basically zero life, zero air. It's pretty cold, actually, so its heat or fire element is pretty small. It's cold, but man, is it solid. (laughs) So this is heavy earth element. Again, not made of dirt, (laughs) made of solidness, right? So everybody got me on that? But so anything made of the physical realm can be understood in terms of how flowy it is, how moving it is, how hot it is, how solid it is. When the Buddhists are talking about rupa, they are talking about skin. They're talking about these crazy fleshy things in here. Eyeballs, ears, nose, uh -uh, all made of rupa. Made of earth, fire, water, and air, or just made of matter. So matter, the body, organs, all of that. Everybody with me on what rupa is? Uh, Let me go through these and then we'll read the sutra again and see what the Shariputra said about this. So you are, and again, I'm putting the you in those parentheses, those scare marks, because we've already sort of kind of hinted at this idea that there might not be a, a you in that sense. But so you are this fleshy material, 
this particular, right, this, this, this tall, this color hair, all of that, right? And in particular, the, the fleshy material organs, right? And it's very helpful to know or to keep in mind that from these fleshy organs, whether it's the skin of which I sense uh, tactility, the eye in which I actually sense rupa, shape and form, or light for argument's sake, right? The nose, which is a sensory organ, the tongue, a sensory organ, and these ears, sensory organs. This is, this is rupa, flesh, matter. This is rupa, flesh, or not flesh, but stuff, matter. When this comes into contact with this, or when this comes into contact with that, or when this comes into contact with that, there arises a, what would be called a sensation. That is called a vidana. Usually translated as sensations, I prefer reactions because it's actually more uh, uh, rudimentary than a sensation. In fact, for the most part, there's just negative and positive reactions to things. We either want more of it or we want it to go away. It's either displeasing or it's pleasing. And by pleasing, it might be, you know, lights or whatever, but it might be a beautiful image. And so I'll just keep looking at it. I'm, I'm pleased by it. So here is something made of matter. Here is something made of matter. When this thing comes into contact with that thing, there emerges a positive reaction, a positive sensation. Whereas when I see things that I don't like or I see things that are ugly or whatever, I'd be like, I don't want to look at that. And I push it away. So now we have that you are, each of us is this fleshy being made of fleshy organs that come into contact with other matter and that coming into contact gives rise to negative and positive reactions. And basically what happens or something to think of with Buddhism is that they're really into the idea of conditioning, meaning that what happens is, is that when I see something and I have a positive relationship or a positive reaction to it, the next time I see it, I reinforce that positive relationship. And so I start to build up these reactions to things, positive and negative reactions to things. So now, start to think about this. Oh, okay, so this is a unique configuration of rupa, Right? This is, this is not Gnome's rupa. He's got his own rupa. This is this rupa, this form. And over here is also a unique set of reactions. The things that I like and don't like, totally different than things that Gnome likes and doesn't like. He is his reactions. I am my reactions. Right? following this? From those accrual of reactions... <laughs> There builds up something called samya, usually translated as perception. I prefer cognition. Actually, what samya means is like, this is a tricky one, but samya means uh, 
associative thought patterns. And what I mean by that is, is that what Samya is, is the way that I, or this, has learned, that's why I put learning up there, it's the way this has learned to disambiguate these things on this table, in fact, even to disambiguate it as a table with a bowl, a microphone, and a clock on it, what I just, what the mind just did there, or what the sensory organs just did there is discriminate this from that, right? Now, if you were from a different culture with different learning, you might discriminate this differently. I see one, two, three, four, five. I see six things. But depending on how your mind works, you might see ten things. It might be clear to you that, that that's two things, not one thing. But that's the way you discriminate. So now you are your unique flesh situation with your unique positive and negative reactions to things and your unique conditioning, the way your mind divides this world up. Because I'll tell you, what's happening here is, is that this dividing the world up into things stems from, oh yeah, I like those, those are nice. So I'll put that over there, put that over there. That this way of dividing the world up is predicated or based on our initial determination of whether I like it or don't like it. So you, if, if you see, there's, these things are building on each other. Everybody okay with Samya? Also, really quickly, too, uh, I mention this from time to time. Samya is this crazy Buddhist uh, understanding of the way the, the mind works. And what it is, and, and I often say this, that advertisers know all about Samya. And what I mean by that is, is that what Samya means is, is that when you are presented with a situation, again, like this, and your, your mind or your sense organs are trying to make sense of what's going on here, the idea is, is I, the, the, the way the mind works is that I actually take in the whole scene and in order for me to make sense of what this is, like in order for me to discriminate this as a bowl, there's a part of my perception, it's another reason why this is translated as perception, there's a part of my perception that is looking to the other thing and looking to the other thing to determine what that thing is. You know, this is sitting on a little pillow and it's got a little thing next to it. So now all of a sudden I get an idea. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's that kind of a thing, right? Because if there's none of this and it's like that, it's kind of a different thing all of a sudden. Right? It's not quite, doesn't ring out meditation bowl anymore. Right? But as soon as I put this back and that next, oh, and put that under it, oh, now you know exactly what it is. So, samya is the way the mind actually refers to the other things in order to make sense of what that thing is. And the reason why I said advertisers know all about Samya is that they know that when you're watching the movie and there's the little Coca-Cola down in the corner, they know your mind sees it because they know Samyakly, that's how the mind works. That we take in the whole scene and make sense of it and go, oh, I like that. 
But we have seen it all in order to make sense of it. Everybody good with Samya? So it's the way your perceptive organs break the world up. And by the way, I just want to point out what we call thinking consciousness, we still have a few steps before we get there. So I was trying to be careful with my language in talking about Samya because it is not the... It is not only the brain that performs this operation. According to the kind of Buddhist psychology here, each of the sensory organs is made of flesh, has positive and negative reactions, meaning that when this ear, when the high-pitched ee starts, my ear first is like, ah, ah, ah. Or if the light gets too bright, I blink. So there's a reaction, a, a reaction, a vidana happening in each of the sensory organs that are made of flesh. So fleshy organs having sensations and from those sensations saying, oh yeah, I've seen that before. It's a bowl and this and this and that. But it's happening in the organ. We're not even thinking about this stuff yet. So then, once we have some organs with reactions firing, creating these cognitions or perceptions, that then leads to samskara, which I translate as conditioning. Volitional formations is what you may have read it as. Just volition. I like memory, emotional responses, or conditions. Because here's what samskara is. If you understand that samya is when I see the whole scene, take it all in, chop it up based on what I like or don't like, and then can say, ah, bowl, pillow, table, right? So that's all in the present moment that I distinguish this from that. This in the present moment from this. But now, once the fleshy eye based on the reactions, has discriminated and said, okay, yeah, I've seen one of these before, right? So there's already a big process that has gone to determining even what this is. Then there's an aspect of your organs called samskara, which says, you know what? I've seen something like that before. And the last time I saw something like that, it was full with all kinds of goodies. Therefore, I love round, hollow things because there's always goodies in round, hollow things. Every time I see a round, hollow thing, I get all excited. That's my samskara. That's my conditioning. Because every time I went trick-or-treating or every time I did whatever, anytime I had one of these, it led to pleasure and goodies. So I have built up a positive reaction to this thing that I will eventually call a bull, right? Now, imagine the other situation where when I was a little kid, the first time one of these things was presented to me, my mom, bam, whacked me over the head with it. Don't do that. What's going to happen the next time somebody busts out one of these? Oh. (laughs) Oh, right? That's samskara, my condition to think, my emotional responses. Now, the important thing to keep in mind is that this samskara 
is where the organs, whether it's the brain or the eye or the ear, is filtering this through all the things I've seen before that looked like it. Or at least all the things that I discriminated and imagined looked like this, right? So all the other ones, again, I have this relationship to, and so I'm going to feel this way about this one. Everybody good on samskara? Samskaras are deep, all right? And just as a reminder, I, this, I, this, is a unique configuration of rupa with a unique set of positive and negative reactions and a unique way of dividing up the world based on the elementary school I went to and the way I was conditioned based on my unique past. I'm the only one, or at least, you know, this is the only one that has seen bowls and had this relationship. You have your own relationship to them. You have your relationship. I have mine. I have my samskaras based on my samya, based on my reactions, based on my fleshy organs. Everybody follow me on this? I'm going to remove the rug out from all of this, but one more step to go. Vijnana, consciousness, thinking, awareness, what we call consciousness, this ever-turning wheel of ideas. Oh, look, there it goes again, thinking about stuff. Well, all of that thinking about stuff is actually thinking about all of your past relationships with things that you determined to be what they are based on negative and positive reactions, uh, based on fleshy organs. Which, by the way, let's talk about these fleshy organs for a minute. Here's my eyeball, right? The light wave coming in. We know this about all eyeballs, but certainly the human eyeball, that we only are able to see a certain bandwidth of light. If the waveform is too big, this eyeball says, I'm not having it. And if the waveform is way too tight, the eyeball says, sorry, I don't have anything to, I don't, I'm only dealing with this bandwidth. So all of this, now. Nah. Right? All of this? No. Just this. So you're telling me that based on this tiny little bandwidth of, of light, then I'm going to run this through a filter of I like that, I don't like that. And that filter of I don't like this, I do like this, based on the tiny bandwidth of light, is going to lead to some determination of what something is and then what it is. Because if that weren't a bowl... I might feel differently about it. If I hadn't have determined that that's a bowl, if I had determined that it's like, I don't know, uh, a porta potty, and I gotta go to the bathroom. Now all of a sudden, I have a totally different relationship to what that is, right? So a limited bandwidth of light with arbitrary positive and negative reactions based on how I was feeling that day, to come to the determination that something is what it is, so I feel about it in a certain way, yeah, that's what your thinking is. That's what thinking is. Or at least a very small aspect of thinking in Buddhism. Totally wrong. Totally some little um, uh, imaginary game. It's, I often say this. I often say this. These things here, eyeballs, the ears, the nose, these organs, these are not windows to the world. They're mirrors to your mind. 
Meaning, you want to see what your mind's like? Take a look around. Because what you are experiencing is all of your uh, conditioned thought patterns, emotional responses, uh, arbitrary distinctions, and reactions. That's what you're experiencing. But because I go, hey, isn't this a nice bowl? And you go, yeah, it's a nice bowl. Because we've used the same word, <laughs> the same shape, right? Bowl? Yes, bowl. We, we assume that there's some sort of uh, reality here. When really what's going on is this much more complex aggregation of, of these five skandhas. And the thing about this is, is that, let's see, what's going on right here? Shaiputra says to our friend, how householder is one afflicted in body, like you're sick, you're ill, you have a disease, and afflicted in mind. Well, I'll tell you, here, somebody, a householder, the uninstructed whirling, who's not a seer, unskilled, undisciplined in the Dharma, right? He regards form as self. Or, put another way, that the self is made of form, right? Or he writes, form as self, or self as possessing form. And he lives obsessed by the notions, I am form. Form is mine. And as he lives obsessed by these notions, that very form of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of form, there arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. Right? Oh, wrinkles. Oh, gray hairs. Oh, it keeps changing. Oh, it keeps changing. Right? So if you regard this as yourself, get ready. Get, get ready. Or he regards vidana. He regards feeling as self. So then it's a situation of like, okay, Buddha, you got me. You got me. When I was a baby, there was that flesh. And when there was this person, there was that flesh. And here's this flesh. You got me, Buddha. There's no continuity of flesh. I know every eight years these cells die and are replenished and there's no actual physical relationship between me and the baby me. No flesh. There's no me that is the flesh. But my experiences, though, those are me, right, Buddha? And again, the idea, you're sitting in the hot tub and you're like, oh, this is great. Having a great time in the hot tub. This is wonderful. But then... Right? He regards sensations as self, or self as possessing sensations, or sensations as in self, or self as in sensations. He lives obsessed by the notions that I am sensations. I am the sensations I'm having. Right? Sensations are mine. As he lives obsessed by these notions, those sensations of his change and alter. The hot tub gets a little lukewarm, right? And with the change and alteration of feeling, there arise in him sorrow. Lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. You ever sat in a lukewarm bathtub? <laughs> it's just not fun, right? It's like... So, or he regards his samya as self, or self as possessing samya, or samya self, self as in samya. He lives obsessed by the notions, I am my perceptions, or perceptions are mine, 
right? As he lives obsessed by these notions that perception of his changes and alters, and with the change and alteration of perception, there arises in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. Same idea, that based on different experiences, we have different new ways of dividing up the world, okay? And then as those change, if we're clinging to those as self, then as they change, we're going to lament and despair, right? He regards volitional formations or his conditioning as self or self as, as conditioning, right? He lives obsessed by the notions, I am my conditioning or conditional conditioning is me. As he lives obsessed by these notions, that very conditioning of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of that conditioning, there arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. Or he regards that very thinking, consciousness as self. Self is possessing consciousness, consciousness is self, or self and consciousness. He lives obsessed by the notions. I am consciousness. Download my consciousness, Elon. I'm ready. <laughs> you think I'm kidding, but there's people that are ready. They think their consciousness is their self. So again, just like last week with the 62 views, all of this is still in play, right? And with the change and alteration of consciousness, they're rising him Sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, right? It is in such a way, householder, that one is afflicted in the body and in the mind. And how, householder, is one afflicted in body but not afflicted in mind? Here, householder, the instructed noble disciple, who is a seer, skilled and disciplined in the Dharma, does not regard form as self, or self as possessing form, or form as in self, or self as in form. He does not live obsessed by the notions, I am form, form is mine. As he lives unobsessed by these notions, that form of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of form, there do not arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. So just on that one alone, is the wisdom clear? <laughs> if you are attached to this as yourself, and you're thinking, I'm looking good today, because this is myself, you see how with the change and alteration of the form, it leads to despair, because it's going to change. If you're attached to this as self, it's telling you it's going to get bad, right? But this is saying if, householder, if you are not, if you say, no, 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 that's not me, then its change and alteration is nothing to you because it's not you. But it's, it's up to you, though. That, that, clinging, that clinging is real. That clinging is, is, is you or is yours. So that's the idea, right? Or he does not regard sensations or feelings as self, or self as possessing of feelings, or feeling as in self, or sensations as in, or self as sensations. He does not live obsessed by the notions, I am feeling, feeling is mine. And he lives unobsessed by these notions, that feeling of, that feeling of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of feeling or sensations, there do not arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, despair, and displeasure. 
So again, if you are not attached to the sensations you're having as yourself, then it's always a new sensation with no attachment to that as the self. So as they alter and change, it's like, oh, what's, what's happening now? Oh, wow, what's happening now? Versus clinging to a moment when you're in the hot tub or whatever. I mean, these, this situation gets pretty serious in terms of like being with my loved one. That's a sensation, positive. Being away from my loved one is negative. That's, those are my serious Vedana. Being with my beloved, positive. Being away from my beloved, negative. And so if I'm clinging to that as self, that I, I, Michael the husband, am most happy and am complete when I'm with my beloved, if I'm attached to that, then when my beloved goes on vacation, my beloved goes away, I'm in despair because I've decided that myself is the sensations of the positive reactions I have when I'm with my beloved. Please don't get this twisted. This is not about not, it's not about me and my beloved. This is about how I understand myself and what I think I am, right? He does not regard his perceptions, his discriminations as self or self as possessing perceptions or perception as self or self as perception. He does not live obsessed by the notions, I am perception or perception is mine. He lives unobsessed by these notions, the perception of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of his perception, there do not arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pair, displeasure, or despair. Right? So the same thing. If we're attached to some... Um, <laughs> I, I told a funny joke uh, one night about this. The idea of this, right? So I have this, this friend. This is, this is a joke, by the way, too. So I don't have a friend. <laughs> but I have this friend, and he loves bowls. He has this amazing bowl collection. You know, and he just comes in, he's like, ah, look at my bowl collection, right? And one night he wasn't home and I went in and I got a blowtorch and I took all of his bowls and I flattened them into plates. And he came in one day and he freaked out. He's like, where's all my bowls? It's like, your bowls are right there, right? I didn't steal them. I just changed their form. <laughs> And he got all bent out of shape because he was very attached to that formation of things. Even, so even though all he did was flatten out his bowls, he got all bent out of shape. So I'm trying, I'm trying up here. All right. So again, the idea is, is that these things are changing anyways, but if you get attached to them in one particular formation... You know, the Buddha's just saying that's going to end bad, dude, because they're changing. So if you're attached to them in this one particular way, it's good, you know, got bad news for you. He does not regard his conditioning, his volitional formations as self, or self as his conditioning. Conditioning as in self, or self as in conditioning. He does not live obsessed by the notion, I am my conditioning. Conditioning is mine, right? He lives unobsessed by these notions, those very conditioning volitional formations of his change and alter, and with the change and alteration of volitional formations, or conditioning, there does not arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. Right? So again, if you have you know, developed this very 
warm feeling about things. That's your samskara. That's your conditioned way of thinking. When something new has been brought into your universe or your world that might change that, some people get a little freaked out by changes to their conditioning. They like things the way they thought they were. Right? And this is saying, well, A, things are going to change anyways. You're going to change anyways. And if you're clinging to that one particular formation of yourself, it's just going to get bad and bad and bad. You have no attached clinging to yourself as that formation of form and those sensations and that perception and that conditioning. If you're not attached to that, no pain. No sorrow, no lamentation, no despair. Amazing. <laughs> and finally, he does not regard his consciousness as self or self as possessing consciousness, consciousness as self, self as in consciousness. He does not live obsessed by these notions. I am consciousness or consciousness is me. As he lives unobsessed by these notions, that very consciousness of his changes and alters with the change and alteration of consciousness there do not arise in him sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair. It is in such a way, householder, that one is afflicted in body, but not afflicted in mind. This is what the Venerable Shariputra said. Elated, the householder, Nakula Pita, delighted in the Venerable Shariputra's statement. The end. So, another sutra. Okay. Questions? Yep. So then, who, what, where, or the self, experiencer, the Buddha's talking to? <laughs> this is where it gets, this is where it gets tricky. Your question is about sort of that. Right, so we know what we're not. Yep. So, what's going on here then? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so at the at the end of the so I'll just give you the I'll cut to the chase and then we'll rewind for the long one. Ultimately, what the Buddhists are kind of saying, kind of not saying this, they're kind of saying <laughs> that when fleshy material starts to coagulate together. Uh, especially if it has these uh, reactionary sensory organs, right, that sort of react to its environment, there develops these uh, negative positive reactions. And you can literally think of the little single-celled amoeba with its little cilia on the side, and it, it like gets to one side and is like, ooh, and it moves to this side. That's a sensation. It was like too cold, moving over here. <laughs> so this is happening at a, like the most basic cellular level that even every cell has little vidana, little sensations and it's like, oh yeah. So when the flesh gets together and coagulates and all the little cells start to have their reactions, there emerges this cognition that over time develops conditioning and you can sort of imagine these, the samskara as like, um, Oh, these kind of grooves or canals of the mind. You, this conditioning that means your train of thought kind of can only go down one road because you've been conditioned in such a way, right? 
So what happens is, is that in this process, when the aggregates start aggregating, there emerges a sense of self. And that sense of self is the result of clinging. So you, meaning, the, uh, I'm going to have to start getting really careful, right? So the baby is clinging to its notion of self. And the child is clinging to its notion of self. And the adult is clinging to its notion of self. And that clinging, as I said before, the clinging's real, right? But when there's clinging, there, again, there emerges almost, I mean, in, in modern parlance, they would call this an emergent property. So if you know anything about physics, you know about emergent properties. Emergent properties are like a magnetic field. You've got this over here, no magnetic field. You got a magnet over here, no magnetic field. You got this one over here, no magnetic field. You bring them together, oh, there emerges a magnetic field because they're in proximity to each other. A field. You start to move them apart, no more field. Is the field in this one? No. Is it in this one? No. But when the two get together, there emerges a sense of self. When the two get together... <laughs> there emerges a sense of self that it's kind of like, where the fuck did I come from? Oh, I must have come from elementary school and high school and all that. So meaning that in the act of clinging, there emerges the self and the self wonders, I must have come from somewhere and imagines the continuity of history that goes back to this child. It's like, yeah, that's all me. When really what there is is a present experience and arguably an experiencer, but in the moment that's constantly changing. Remember, the point of this sutra is that the forms, the sensations, the perceptions, the conditioning and the consciousness, constantly changing, constantly changing. And so again, if we think about the baby, child and adult, there's no rupa that's consistent through them. There's no sensations, there's no this, there's no that. What there is though, and this is, this is this, if you seem like you're new, so I'll show you, but the view of this in Buddhism is that an hour or two ago, there was a configuration of rupa, matter, having sensations, condition, thinking about certain things, like I'm gonna go teach class. And that configuration of five skandhas bumped this in to being. It's like, oh, I'm ready to go teach. Yeah, let's do this. I got these sensations. I got this consciousness. Oh, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. And so one moment to the next, each karmic configuration of five skandhas keeps bumping the next one into existence. And so indeed, there is karmically a relationship between me and the person that was there two hours ago, and the person from high school, elementary school, and the baby. There's a karma chain or train that connects them all. But if you want to find the, the actual thing that is present now, that was present when I was a baby, 
The Buddha's great realization is, oh, shit, there is nothing. There actually is no essential nature. There's no Atman. Oh, my God, there's just clinging. And then the emergence of a sense of self and, hey, let's give it a name. Let's imagine a history. Sure looks real to me. Now I'm going to start worrying about it. (laughs) Versus this this dharma, this Buddhist wisdom of non-attachment, of not clinging. And what that means in the context of tonight is not clinging to the notion that that baby was me. Not clinging to the notion that that kid was me. Even that that person two hours ago was me. And if you're really good, not even clinging to the notion that this is me. Experience. Ooh. <laughs> Experience. And if you paid attention to the sutra, what awaits you from that is no despair, no suffering, no displeasure, none of that. By not clinging or being attached. No. Um, I feel like I have a slightly nuanced understanding of the clinging, which is it. You don't. That I know that the self arises from the clinging, but it's not from the clinging to all of them. It's a clinging to any of them. Like you just cling to one of those things, and you're going to have some suffering. Well, let's let's back up. So the basic idea of this and. I've I've said this one before, and it doesn't always get across, so let's try it again. So, the unenlightened view. So, the unenlightened view is that baby, child, adult, there's a self, a person, Michael, right? That's that's real somehow, because I'm unenlightened, so I'm like, yeah, this is real. The unenlightened person thinks I'm real, existing and thinking, And you know what? I could really use a bowl. Oh, look! A bowl. That's how the unenlightened person thinks it. That they exist, really, truly, having some thoughts, and then they're like, you know what? Boom! And then there it is. That's the unenlightened view. And again, this is like deep dharma here, because the idea is that the illusion of the self is really heavy. It's a really heavy illusion to get past, but... Watch this. The unenlightened view, the self is here. Says, oh, a bowl, perfect. And grabs a bowl. The enlightened view is that there is form with sensations uh, lacking. There's lack, negative, this and that. And then the moment all of those five aggregates with the negative positive reaction and the conditioning and all of that, when they, boom, now the self arises. That the self arises through clinging. We think we exist, and therefore we just run around in the world of things. And this is a very, very subtle dharma, but it's actually through the wanting, through the clinging, through the identifying of things as things, that the very notion of self comes into existence. And this is happening all the time, every single second. We never get a break from sensory input. And therefore, the idea of like, well, who's having this sensory input? I must be having this sensory input, and I want more of it. <laughs> it's all kind of um, out of control. And that's the meditation. 
The practice is to bring it all down so that one can have a clear mind and ultimately be like, you know what? I think the Buddha's right. I don't think there's any essential self down here. I think it's just a bunch of clinging. And holy shit, when I let go of all that clinging, I feel so much better. All right, questions, please. I'm curious, some practice in Buddhism are more into prayers and some are more like meditation. So how would you see like the prayer context? I don't see where they would deconstruct the self um, and, and all these aggregates through praying, for example, for a Buddha. Hmm. Um, I mean, that gets a little tricky because... You know, gets tricky because Buddhism is a long, old tradition, and there's so many different ways to do it, so many places and countries and times. So to talk about prayer in Buddhism is one thing. It's like, I don't know. And certainly there's a lot of places in which the prayer, like praying to Amitabha Buddha, that type of Buddhism, you're not going to find any of this. Nobody's going to be telling you about no self. No, 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 no. But in its original form the what would be called bhakti that devotional form of yoga that devotional form of buddhism or a type of buddhism that's devotional um the original formation of it is that it rather much like uh what what would be called islam islam means to surrender and the original movement in the the pure land or the devotional form of buddhism is a, is like a surrendering of the self to buddha in a way so originally it was kind of like I listen to your Dharma talk, dude, but it's like, it's just too crazy. I don't know what you're talking about anymore. And there's an easier version, which is the more surrender the self. <laughs> and the idea is, is that the end, the end result of those are the same. This is sort of more in the, what, what I'm usually doing is appealing more to the kind of the more, the person that wants to reason this out a little bit more. Because I could tell you, Oh, great Buddha says there's no self, just pray. And again, that might work. Or you might be like, what? I'm not going to do that. And so it's like, oh, okay, oh, okay, let's talk then. And we'll do this intellectually. So that's sort of how they fit together where the end is the same, but it's kind of for different personalities, I think. Mm -hmm. Noe? So this really ties into last three weeks of the Buddhistic of the idea of you. Yes. And that there are so many different views, and they're all right, or not. <laughs> if I don't have a view about them, then I then it's fine. If I don't carry the drishti, if I can... This is enough. If there's no self, then there's no drishti. There's no translation, or there's no view. That didn't come out right. I heard you loud and clear, though. Yeah. And you're right. And that's the very idea, is that all 62 of those views on the other side of the board are based on the idea that there's a self, there's an Atman. This, again, pulls the rug out from underneath that. There's no buddy to reincarnate. Now, again, if you weren't here for my previous lessons, I want to remind everybody how this works, right? No self, think about it, right? Don't believe me, but think about it. And I introduced this sort of karma train of me from a few hours ago, hour ago, to now. And that that train goes all the way back to high school, elementary school, 
and then birth, right? And I kind of tried to break down how there is a continuity between me and that baby, right? Because the things that baby ate, the things that baby did, the things that baby thought all went to these formations that keep getting passed down. And I'm the inheritor of that karma, shall we say. But like I said, if I'm a good Dharma practitioner, I'm not clinging to the hour ago person as me. I'm not clinging to the high school or the baby. I'm not clinging to any of that as me. But the wisdom shows me how there's a karmic connection between the two, right? Everybody follow me on this? If you understand that, so uh, continuity of self but no actual self, then just throw in there this idea that, oh, a baby, elementary school, high school, two hours ago, now, uh, 20, 30, 40 years from now, death, rebirth, baby, elementary school, high school, going on, right? There can be reincarnation of the karma train but still no self. And what that means is, is that from a Buddhist point of view, the reason why I should be mindful of my speech, thoughts, action, livelihood, the reason why I should take care of all of this is, A, suffering here and now, and the potential alleviation of suffering here and now. Great. But one of the reasons why I should be like, kind of kind to this body and ultimately kind to this mind is out of compassion for that future being that's going to inherit all this. It ain't going to be me because there ain't no me. But there is going to be a future inheritor of all of it, even if it's me tomorrow. You see what I'm saying? So this is where you, in Buddhism, you still have reincarnation without a self, without an essential Atman or soul. The karma, the accrual of these, of the accrual of all of this keeps going. And morphing and changing and morphing and changing. But at a certain point along the road, it's like, oh, yeah, stay right there. Stay like this. So stop changing. Why do you keep talking? And so it's suffering because of the clinging. That's noble truth one, two, four right there. Maybe uh, I would like a different word than self because, like, it's like the Big Bang. Like, there was an initial relationship that burst into time, into awareness. And it's like, so for me, when you do the word self, like, I get it. There's no baby that's not me, that's not self, or whatever. Like, it's, but the kind of train, it's like I want to call that self. Yes. That's the tendency. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like a language when you try to discuss God. Like I can't, I can't distinguish, separate from like Jewish upbringing about like God's so beard, judging and angry, but forgetting and loving too. And I, I have this image that like so it's like we, it's almost like in order to dialogue about it, it's like can we use a different word? Yes. And imagine being the Dharma teacher that's trying to be like, all right, so this configuration of five skandhas, you know, you're trying to be very careful with your language because I, I would no. prefer not to say I. I, you know, I would like to try to not keep reinforcing that singular sense of self. Yes, it's true. And so, but a good observation though, the, the role of language in all of this is huge. It's actually why I introduced that idea of nama rupa, name and form. It's all bound up together. Yep. But change is not always negative and leading to lamentation. 
So, for example, imagine the case of somebody who was born with, let's say, you know, some 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 kind of a biological issue, and then they get a you know an organ transplant or something, and now they're living better than they ever have, even when they were a little baby or a little kid. So it's it's not always negative. Change is not always a negative. Yeah, I think the discourse is not so much about change. In fact, it's actually in a way trying to get us to celebrate change. The discourse is about the attachment to the same. Always the problem. The attachment to, to yeah, stay just like this. It's never going to happen. That's the whole thing. Buddhism's trying to wake us up to reality here, which is that change is always going to happen. And so... Yes, celebrate it. But, the, I mean, with your example, there's a problem, though, which is that what happens when the, then the operation only lasts a few years and it fails, and then the change has brought sorrow and lamentation. So, again, the Buddhist wisdom of the middle path is don't get excited about this, but don't get all sad and worked up about that. Middle path, even keeled. I'm thinking of an example of somebody who had some kind of an issue and... This person, um, for like the first 30 years, they didn't know why they had so many health issues. Mm-hmm. And then they figure out it was, oh, it's just this, you know, this, this particular gland needs a little work. Mm-hmm. Surgery, three, you know. Indeed. Four, four weeks later, it's like, wow, so this is how it feels to live without health, constant health problems. Indeed, the, the wisdom of this sutra and this, and this really interesting thing about being afflicted in the body but not afflicted in the mind. So let me just use your example really quickly to try to re-articulate this point, right? The idea, the wisdom of this would be saying to that person before the operation, right? So whoever you're thinking of, these years before the operation, they could be, and I'm not saying they weren't, I don't know, but the idea is, is that all those years they could not be suffering. They could be not afflicted in mind. Again, I'm not saying they were afflicted in mind, but they were afflicted in body. And if they were like, oh, like it sucks that I can't do X, Y, and Z. Oh, it sucks that all my friends have glands that I don't have. Oh, it sucks. If that's that, they're afflicted in mind and in body, but they could potentially be afflicted only in body and not in mind. Then they have the operation. Oh yeah, now they've got the gland. Everything's working right. And at that point, they could be Attached to their body and afflicted in body and mind or only afflicted in body or fully liberated. So do you see what I'm saying? Like the, the, the wisdom here is applicable all the time. Whether the, the situations like this or the situations like that. So it's not about the change. Again, the Buddha wants us to wake up to the fact that everything's going to change. Everything's going to change. You're going to change. This country's going to change. This world's going to change. And if you're clinging to a way it is and a way you want it to be, you're just setting yourself up for suffering. And if you are open to change, if you are comfortable with change, if you're riding the roller coaster and having a good time, then that is not suffering, not being displeased, not being in despair. Again, we're just talking about our relationship to these things vis-a-vis clinging, right? Yes, sir. I'll go back to the thing about reincarnation and like no self. Yep. So reincarnation, past lives, like these things were common beliefs at the time, at the place. Yep. And I, I don't know to what extent like Buddhism or the Buddha directly talks about, like for example, like 
meditative practices of looking into past lives and things like that. And if that's acknowledged as a thing that's real, and if it is, then like how is that then reconciled with this? <laughs> so it's very real in Buddhism. They talk about it a lot. The coming into awareness of one's past lives is a symptom of enlightenment. The idea is that you will eventually start to remember your past lives and actually it gets even crazier where you can start to see the past lives of others. So they're all about it. But in terms of my little Dharma talk here, in the same way that you can remember your childhood, but there's no continuity of self in all of that, yet you can still remember it, the same action is happening when you remember your past lives. There's no difference there. Is there, what's the, guess like, what's the connective tissue to past lives? Like, in, in, in the current, it's like, yes, everything's changing, every cell in my body's gonna turn over, my neurological patterns are gonna change, it's something I think of as correct today, it's not gonna be correct tomorrow, so all of that changes. There's sort of like, um, again, there is no single thing, but there's like, there's a set of things undergoing a process. Yeah, this is the, math, the mathematical set. If you think of these five skandhas, as being set, skanda set one, right? If, if mathematicians in the room, right? And since this is a matter, in the next moment, more or less, for argument's sake, same flesh, same sensations, same conditioning, same this, but our consciousness is changing. So one moment to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, right? A moment later, my flesh is the same. I shouldn't keep putting the cat back on. Uh, this is the same. This is the same, but this is different. And then that. You see where this is going. That eventually what happens is, is moment to moment to moment, these five skandhas, you will eventually get a brand new set that is entirely different set of letters than set A, but a trail, yeah, this is you put this in your crypto, and a trail that you can be able to see where it all connects. But again, at, at point, this is point one, this is going to be point 20 or whatever, you'll have a whole new set of five skandhas. Nothing in this set can you point to that was in the original set, but the chain. The part that's interesting to me is like, at death, all of those just go away, and then uh, it, it's, it's this change sort of has like well-defined properties of like a little at a time. Yep. Um, I can sort of needlessly make it mathematical, but that's like not so much. It's, it's like more continuous, uh, partial, like piece by piece wise process. Whereas death is like, okay, all of those five disappear, and then like they reappear somewhere. Well, I mean, uh, it's a little late in the evening for this, but. <laughs> but <laughs> Technically, if you want to know, all right, so this is matter, and actually the organs which are producing the sensations, and for intents and purposes, the brain or, or organs that are having the sonia and having that, they're made of this. And so yes, when these break apart, you don't have any more of this, you don't have any more of that, and you don't have any more of that. However, in the Buddhist tradition, and I'm, you know, I'm just the messenger here, <laughs> they do understand there to be an ethereal, ether-like, an ethereal realm where 
Vijnana is essentially a wave formation of that ethereal realm. And so, if you need to think of it like that, the Vijnana pops out upon death, vibrates along this ethereal realm, and essentially goes flying into a womb, a woman's womb or test tube or whatever, where there is a, a formation of rupa with organs, having sensations, building up perceptions, developing conditioning, but it's not conscious yet. And in sometime in the first trimester or whatever, a vijnana in the form of what's called a gandharava goes flying in, or that might just be a metaphor, but for that ethereal vibration, goes and starts vibrating the baby into existence. And that's how you get that continuity of consciousness, the ability to remember past lives, is because there's a thread of vijnanic continuity or connectivity. But remember, the the vijnana consciousness I was having two hours ago Totally different than the one I'm having right now. Even though that produced this one. (laughs) Right? So there's the continuity. And so the Buddhists are saying, yeah, and that continuity keeps going. And if you're a real upper level practitioner, you can remain conscious during the post-corporal moment. And you can be conscious in the ethereal bardo, traverse it, and ultimately actually survey the world and be like, that one looks nice. Or so the tradition goes. But that's the idea. Do you have something? Yeah. Uh, um, going back to, you had a hypothetical where you're, first you go to the um, unenlightened and you go for yes. the bowl. Yes. And then you, the one I want to ask you about is when you were, you were standing there and you were the enlightened version. And so you, somehow between the point where you're enlightened and then you go over and grab the bowl, you had selfed yourself in some way. And I'm wondering, like, did you, was it like you, somewhere in your mind as the enlightened, you decided, I like bowls or I want a bowl, I want to own a bowl, I see that bowl over there, I'm going to go get that bowl, and then you go and you grab that bowl. Is there somewhere in like that succession of your thoughts where you became, you you couldn't any longer be described as an enlightened person, but you then, when you grab the bowl, you said, well, now I'm... Yeah, so yeah, that was a meta, there was some meta-ness going on there. What I, what I mean by that is, is that in that example, what I was trying to say was that it is the enlightened mind that understands that selves are co-produced with clinging. The notion of a self is co-arising with that which I think I want or that which I think is here. In other words, we, so let's forget about the bull, you and I, our sense of self is co-arising 
And it's because I think you're a self, well, therefore, I must be a self. So it's like we are constantly, this self is arising out of this constant interface with the world in that way. So the bull would be a self. Mm, I mean, arguably, but more to the point with the bull, though, is that it's the unenlightened person that thinks they pre-exist all the time and then go around the world selecting things. And my example was to try to say it's in the selection process process. that self's emerged to begin with. And then they feel very satisfied with themselves in that sense. Again, that's a really tricky one to get, that to the unenlightened mind, the self exists already and then goes and selects things in the world of objects. The enlightened mind understands that self and world of objects co-arise at the exact same moment. And this hasn't pre-existed before the bull. When there's bull, there's self. So I'm in this feedback loop with it all, creating a sense of self. And that's why the... It's not always a requisite of the meditation, but to really achieve a meditation of no self is to ultimately what's called guarding the sense doors. Close it down. Actually close your eyes, silent, dark room, uh, lotus posture, stillness. And the idea is you actually try to remove that which is reaffirming and creating the sense of self until eventually you will arrive at a peaceful state of meditation which can be divorced from objects and things. And the idea of these uh, dhyanas or jhanic states is that one can have, uh, uh, you, can feel, you can feel what it's like to be without a self. You can feel what it's like to be without a self. You just be. Right? That's what often a good meditation is described as you just be. I just be in. Like a sense of being without the sense of self, just a sense of experience. And that's where the experience can get transcended when it's not experienced as being between the ears and behind the eyes. It's broader. Beautiful. We did it. We did it. Thank you so much. More to come. More sutras.